This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. And as Dr. Genescu makes his way down the hall, that is my cue. George, of course, the host of Big Band Sunday Night here on our flagship station, AM 740, Zuma Radio, and uh, his program precedes this program. Have a safe trip, uh, George, as he goes up the 404 uh, to his home in Barry, uh, welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. It you know it doesn't feel like Christmas yet up here in the Great White North. It's not so white, <laughs> at least in uh, Toronto. It's raining and mild, about six degrees, uh, which is uh, forty six, forty seven degrees Fahrenheit. I figure. However, uh, we did have lunch with Santa Claus today. Uh, at least uh, Zachary and I did up at uh, Saint Nicholas Church, and poor little Northy missed out. He was at home with a fever. However, uh, North and, uh, and Zach received iPods uh, for their birthday last month. And uh, so North was able to actually uh, FaceTime with Santa <laughs> and uh, tell him what he wanted for Christmas. Isn't technology wonderful? Uh, Zach, are now, Zach and North are now uh, eight uh, and still believe in Santa Claus. And I think it's wonderful that uh, my little guys haven't lost their sense of wonder and innocence. Uh, Mind you, this may be, I'm figuring, the last year where they'll truly believe. So I'm going to start Christmas uh, early and hold on to it as long as I possibly can. I I mentioned North and St. Nick on FaceTime this afternoon and how wonderful technology is. We're doing another Hangout on air tonight, this morning. So if you want to catch the live stream on YouTube... Uh, just go to my Twitter feed, at Richard Serrett. Let me spell the last name for you. I've been in this business for 20 years, and I've, uh, I'm still spelling, 25 years, still spelling my last name on air. However, it's S-Y-R-E-T-T, Richard Serrett, at Richard Serrett. That'll get you to the uh, the Twitter feed, and just click on the link there. It's right at the top of the Twitter feed. And, hey, while you're there, be sure to follow. Uh, so... You can watch and you can listen to the show. Remember Ebola? 
Yeah, it's it's still out there. It's still a very grim situation. And just because it's no longer front and center on Anderson Cooper 360 uh, doesn't mean that Ebola uh, has somehow resolved itself. Far from it, in fact. Uh, Ebola cases now exceed 16,000 worldwide. That's according to the World Health Organization. Nearly 7,000 people have died. And Sierra Leone is in desperate need of, of more beds. Because, in fact, Sierra Leone is, is bearing the brunt of this, uh, it's now eight, month, eight months old, this outbreak. The other uh, countries, Liberia, Guinea, the rates there, the Ebola rates there, are apparently stabilizing and declining. But in Sierra Leone, they are soaring. The country's been reporting around 400 to 500 new cases each week for the last several weeks. And two months ago, WHO launched uh, an ambitious plan to stop the deadly Ebola outbreak in West Africa. They wanted to isolate 70% of the sick and to have 70% safe burials in the uh, three hardest-hit countries, Guinea, Liberia, and Sierra Leone, by December 1. Well, only Guinea is on track to meet that deadline according to uh, an update from the World Health Organization. In Liberia, only 23% of the cases are isolated and 26% of the needed burial teams are in place. Sierra Leone, about 40% of the cases are isolated. So the, the target late, uh, date uh, is now here and gone. And again, it looks almost certain that whose goals will be missed, marking another failure in an attempt to uh, slow the biggest ever outbreak of the deadly disease. Now, meanwhile, there's another story that's been placed on the back burner, although it continues to rage, and of course, that's ISIL, the Islamic State of Iraq and the Levant. This rampaging uh, army of radical Sunni Muslim terrorists that are murdering, beheading, raping, kidnapping, pillaging anyone and anything that gets in their way. A word out of Baghdad is that Iraq's financial sector already on its deathbed, is facing a recession. Not surprisingly, because of the war between the country's security forces, such as they are, and the Islamic State of Iraq and the Levant, ISIL, their fighters have seized one-third of Iraq's territory and displaced up to two million Iraqis. Experts say the massive deterioration in the country's overall security situation and ongoing instability in Baghdad have particularly impacted the country's financial sector. The sector is comprised of 55 banks, of which 32 are private sector enterprises, 7 government-owned, 16 international players, and an additional 49 separate investment in other financial firms round out the list. Meanwhile, in Syria, some good news of sorts in terms of the efforts to slow or stop ISIL's progress. A human rights group there says ISIL has suffered heavy losses uh, in uh, Syria's Koban or Kobani, where at least 50 fighters were killed in the past 24 hours in fighting and U.S.-led airstrikes. So, Ebola, terrorism. What if, imagine, what if these two threats were to converge into one? For example, what if a, a suicide or a suicidal a terrorist infected with the Ebola virus were to slip into some large urban center in North America and blow him or herself up. 
Or, of course, the, the virus could also be released more subtly. Terrorists could collect samples of infected body fluids and then place them on doorknobs, handrails, or airplane tray tables, allowing Ebola to spread quietly before officials even realize that a biological attack has taken place. Well, that grim scenario is where we're headed for the duration of this hour on The Conspiracy Show with my guest, Dan Perkins, is a master storyteller and author of the Brotherhood of the Red Nile Trilogy, which centers around Islamic nuclear terrorism against the United States, but he's also a nationally recognized expert on radical terrorism. Dan, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. Thank you for having me on. A pleasure. By the way... I want to tell you, I'm 69 years old, and I still believe in Santa Claus. Well, God bless you. God bless you. Yes, there is. Virginia? Now, I want to, I want, with that happy note, I want to add one more item to your list of things. All right. It's not be, not, that's not being talked about. Please. America, I believe this to be true. America is being attacked again, and it's being attacked by the Saudis and the rest of OPEC. Last Thursday, while Americans were having their Thanksgiving dinners, OPEC decided not to cut production of crude oil in the Middle East. Therefore, dropping the price of crude oil, American crude oil, by almost $8 a barrel in one day. Now, the implication to that is is that when I said they're being attacked, it is clear based on press reports that I have seen over this weekend that Saudi Arabia and the rest of the partners in OPEC are bombarding the United States and the world markets with oil and they have said specifically to stop both the United States and Canada from developing their re- oil alternative resources, whether it's shale oil and tar sands from Canada, whether it's natural gas and oil from the Dakotas and Texas, whether it's solar panels, whether it's wind energy, they are clearly, OPEC is clearly attacking the United States and Canada to stop the development of energy. Right now, the world, um, the International Energy Organization has estimated that in your country, the reserves in the oil and tar sands in your country are greater than the reserves in Saudi Arabia. That's true. That's true. But we need that oil about, I believe it's up around at least $85, $87 a barrel before we can pull it out of the ground and make a profit. OPEC needs $90 a barrel as a a cartel to break even. Saudi Arabia needs 85. And so they're losing money. OPEC is losing big money when, and today, uh, crude oil this morning, uh, is trading and it's trading at sixty four dollars. So it's down <clears throat> uh, another two and a half dollars since Friday's close. But the Saudis don't really care, and OPEC doesn't really care how much money they lose, except that some of the OPEC nations who are part of the cartel that are are 
desperately wanting the production level to be cut to raise the price because they're losing money or now having to touch their sovereign wealth funds in order to be able to survive. So we are at an all-out attack, and I'm beginning to wonder if there is a relationship between OPEC and ISIL, that the world energy producers are in fact leading the charge for ISIL economically to disincentivize Americans and Canadians to find alternatives and to become totally energy independent. Now, I understand your your comment about 85, 90, and my comment about 90, but, but we're now dealing with a political issue, a security issue, where the countries <clears throat> that started OPEC in, and caused, in 1975, the United States to go into an oil crisis to the point that, <clears throat> because I'm old enough, I remember the rationing lines in, this, in, in New Jersey where I was living at the time, where you got, you got gasoline based on either your house number or your driver's license number or your last name. They're, they're seeing what's happening is the change that has taken place in, in Canada and the United States. The Green River Valley area of the United States, out in the mountains, which is primarily public land, the geologists have estimated has more reserves of oil in that one spot than all the reported reserves in the rest of the world. Period. Sure, there is there is no reason why the United States, uh, and I believe it. I mean, it has, as you say, it has the reserves. It should be the number one energy producer in the world. It should be energy independent, but somehow. Yeah. Uh, you know, we gave away the store. I don't know, was it in exchange for the Saudis buying U.S. debt? We, we, we're coming up on a break here, Dan. Uh, I mean, we could okay. spend three hours just talking about this, but I, I do want to uh, steer it back to Ebola if we can. Sure. When we Absolutely. come back, and uh, we'll dial it all the way back to uh, 2001 and a, mm-hmm. uh, a national security exercise called Dark Winter. Dan Perkins is with yeah. us, master storyteller, author of the Brotherhood of the Red Nile Trilogy, as we discuss Ebola and radical Islam. Right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Welcome back. Dan Perkins is with us, master storyteller, author of the Brotherhood of the Red Nile Trilogy, which centers around Islamic nuclear terrorism. But now we're talking about, uh, well, the, the world has... Uh, of course, this ongoing uh, outbreak of Ebola and uh, at the same time, the Islamist radicalism that's going on in the, in the Middle East. What if these two threats were to converge into one? Now, Dan, you talk about uh, uh, this exercise, uh, this uh, national security exercise back in 2001, the summer of 2001, mm-hmm. called Dark Winter. What was that right. all about? That was a, uh, well... The the scenario, some people don't believe it ever actually happened. Some people believe that it did. But it was basically um, an attack in the United States in various areas uh, with chemical and biological agents, and it was trying to determine uh, what would happen to America in the event of that kind of a kind of an attack. Um as I said, some people believe it never really happened. Some people believe that it did happen. Uh, and there are lots of different stories about, you know, what was tested, what wasn't tested, how did it do. 
Um, this was a simulated, it, a simulated biological attack. Yes, it was. It was simulated. Um, but there are some people who think that maybe it was a cover-up for something else going on. Um, I'm, I'm not into that kind of situation. I, I, I but but what happened is that um, they discovered in the simulation how vulnerable we were and are as a nation. Um, I tried to do exactly the same thing in my first book in the trilogy, is to try and and help people understand four different scenarios of how we might be attacked. Um, and a lot of people who've read book one and then looking at the four scenarios um, uh, get scared because they seem so realistic. You, you're also raising a, a very... I've had a lot of people ask me about the scenario that you're talking about, the combination of ISIL and Ebola. Um, I, I believe that we have to, um, we we as authors have to do a lot of research to try and figure things out, especially when we're dealing with fiction, to try and make it as real as possible. And I always start by asking myself a question. You know, and, and in your situation, if how can I combine Ebola and ISIL? And and I've been talking about this for most of the summer, sometimes as many as four or five times a day, about my observations of how the terrorists could possibly use uh, Ebola. And you, you, you gave a couple of illustrations, which were certainly valid early on in the program. But I think there, there are other possible scenarios, um, not so much like the dark winter scenario, but... Um, the reality is if you step back and you take a look at some things, you begin to understand how there's a structure in place that could make it very easy for ISIL to combine uh, human carriers with uh, the Ebola virus. Um, I don't know to what extent you've traveled overseas into Europe in the last uh, year or so, uh, or actually longer than that, um, when the EU came into play, uh, at, as the countries began to dissolve their borders and create a, a an European Union passport and 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 uh, immigration control, um, if you go into London or Paris, for example, if you're flying in and you have an EU passport, you don't go through. Uh, border control. You just walk through the sign that says the EU. That's right. Once you um, land in Europe, you've got, it's pretty well carte blanche. Right. And so if you follow what's going on, I was in, my wife and I were in Paris just about a year ago this time, um, and you see the uprising in, in Paris with the Muslims who are complaining, 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 protesting. The same thing's going on in England and in Ireland, and these countries are now beginning to be concerned that they're losing their identity because of the influx of the Muslim population and the activity of the Muslim populations in these in these countries that I just mentioned. Um, I, I haven't seen any results yet. Switzerland this weekend is actually having a public referendum on whether or not they should limit the number of Foreign nationals coming into the into this country of Switzerland, taking up residency. 
because they say under this voting uh, process that they believe that they're losing control of their culture and their history and their country. So I, I think that what's different this time about the ISIL and, let's say, al-Qaeda, uh, is that ISIL is much more sophisticated. They have a much better sense of technology, social media, but they have a huge network of, of mosques all over the world, in Europe and in the United States. The number of mosques since September the 11th attack have almost doubled in the United States. Uh, I believe that the likely scenario is that they will, the leadership will appeal to a certain number of people, we're, we're going to call them followers, believers, whatever you want to say, who will agree to go into France, England, wherever, through the U, EU passport, will become infected, knowing that they're going to die, and that their mission is to go through the EU into the United States. By doing that, they skirt the passport control issues that the United States has put in place, uh, because they're not coming from West African countries. These are Muslims, active, radical Muslims in these countries who are living and residing there, and they're coming from them. They're going to be infected. They're going to come into the United States, and I believe whether they're going to blow themselves up and spread the virus or just come in contact with people, um, they're, they're going to use, I believe it's the potential that ISIL can use the Ebola virus as a new weapon, not ballistic, but human, and they will find many believers who are willing to give up their lives for Allah and come to the United States, Canada, and wherever they're, they're ordered to go to attack those countries. I, I saw you were talking in a few moments ago, you were talking about the uh, Ebola in Sierra Leone. Again, I don't know whether you saw it, but there was a report this week that the burial details and Sierra Leone were striking for more pay. And what they were doing was basically dumping the bodies in the street that were supposed to be buried. So there's going to be plenty of virus to get their hands on, whether they come into the United States through Europe, through a country where the people are already living there and who have decided they were willing to make the sacrifice for Allah and for the, for the cause. Um, I, I think there is a great possibility that because it's not in the headlines does not mean they're not thinking about it. And do we know about, uh, are there any intelligence reports about the presence of ISIL in West Africa? We tend to think of ISIL as being sort of limited to Iraq, Syria, the Levant, in other words. Um, interesting. <laughs> let me, let me, let me, great question, by the way. Uh, would, would would you be surprised if I told you that our border patrol reported through the southern border that 1,100 Chinese were detained? Would you be surprised if I told you that hundreds of Syrians, hundreds of Iranians, Iraqis came through the southern border of the United States and were and were captured? That North Koreans were coming through the southern border of the United States. I, we've heard those How reports, but not, they, some of those have been dismissed as apocryphal. You're saying that this is this is actually. I mean, where is this information coming from, Dan? Let me it's ask. Coming you. from the border control, who reports on a regular basis the nationalities of the people 
that are physically stopped and detained at the American border. That comes from the U.S. Border Control. That's not fictitious. That's a Border Patrol report. Now, why would 1,100 Chinese be coming, coming through, or Chinese, or Syrians, or Iranians, or Iraqis, or Palestinians, why would they be coming through into the United States through the Mexican border? Or maybe a better question to ask is, with those people from China, North Korea, and all those Middle Eastern countries coming up through Mexico, are they here for no good? Some Why would they cross? Some of them, perhaps. Well, they cross there because that's the place to come. Because there's 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 virtually no border there. But all these countries, all these people coming from all over the world, are they all coming because they want to get into the United States along with the Central and South American? Spanish-speaking people? Well, perhaps, but it only takes one, uh, one, you know, wishing ill will of no matter what, uh, what, what race or, or uh, you know, nationality. Uh, but I guess I, back to my, my central question about, about ISIL uh, and do we know about their presence in, in countries like Sierra Leone or Guinea or Liberia? Are they active there? Do they have cells there? Well, I have to believe that any place where there is the Muslim faith and it's all over the world, you have people who are supposedly what we call, we're, we, our American media has adopted as being radical. There are Muslims who believe that what ISIL believes, and there may be leaders from ISIL. I mean, in my own country, Richard, there are people who do not want to believe that people, Americans, are converting their names to, to Muslim, uh, Islamic names from mosques and are leaving to go over to the Middle East to fight to kill America. It's happening here too. Oh, I know it is. And, and, and so we, we ask ourselves somewhat rhetorically, do we know if there are people in Sierra Leone and, and, and the other countries? Um, how can we afford or dare we assume that they're not? Good point. You're Excellent looking, point. You're looking to preserve and try and protect your country, whether it be Canada or the United States. If you don't believe, um, unfortunately for us, we have a lot of politicians who don't. If you don't believe that if somebody has threatened and says, we are going to put the Islamic flag on the White House in the United States, then you have to understand that they will try any means whatsoever to get into the United States and any means to destroy America or Canada, regardless of where it comes from. And so the idea that to, to assume that there are no ISIL operatives in, the, in, in West Africa is folly. So let's go back to that the dark winter scenario because it's pretty stark. And in this simulation, uh, back in 2001, and this was uh, uh, a bunch of national security experts that gathered at Andrews Air Force Base, and it was hosted yes. by the John Hopkins Center. Uh, so mm -hmm. in the simulation, you had a thousand people supposedly infected, 300 die. Mm -hmm. So according to this exercise and, and ostensibly i believe it was they were talking about smallpox as, as the as the biological agent and 
hospitals, of course, were reporting that they were grossly inadequate. Uh, there were grossly inadequate supplies and insufficient isolation rooms. Uh, now, what's sort of the difference then between – draw the contrast. It's pretty stark between smallpox and, let's say, Ebola. Well, that, that's, a, that's another great question. Uh, the, the problem that you have with smallpox under the dark winter scenario is that they also found that they didn't have – there wasn't enough available vaccine to inoculate the population uh, with, against smallpox. Now, that's kind of this is this is kind of a very interesting twist that you're raising here, because in, in in at least my interpretation of dark winter was really to be not a national security test, but a test of the medical system coming from Johns Hopkins of how we would do with how how the medical system in the United States would deal with this problem. I don't think it was intended ever to be a, a, uh, a strategic or a military review of possible vulnerabilities from a strategic or military standpoint. Uh, I think it was really to test the validity of the, of the American medical system. But, but here, here's my, my what's happened that's caused this whole thing to turn. Let me just get you. To, dark- let me just get you to hold on to that, Dan, because we're coming up on a break here. Sure. When we come back on the other side, we'll 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 talk about uh, the difference between smallpox and Ebola. Of course, there was or is a vaccine for smallpox. Uh, none such exists, as far as we know, uh, for Ebola. Is it right. possible that these two threats, ISIL and Ebola, could converge into one grim? threat. Back with more of my conversation with Dan Perkins right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Welcome back. Dan Perkins stays with us, the author of The Brotherhood of the Red Nile Trilogy. And we're talking about the uh, potential for the, uh, the the twin threats of uh, Ebola and uh, ISIL converging into one threat. Imagine a scenario, for example, where uh, a, a terrorist, a suicidal terrorist infected with Ebola uh, makes his way or her way into a, a major urban center in North America uh, and does uh, one of two things. Uh, 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 blows themselves up in a crowded place, of course, causing uh, a huge potential for infection, or, or in a more subtle uh, scenario, simply uh, spreads the uh, the virus via, via doorknobs and handrails, etc. Uh, either way, a pretty grim scenario. And uh, we were talking about uh, dark winter, where the U.S. Uh, simulated uh, a biological outbreak in the United States back in 2001. In that case, the scenario involved uh, involved smallpox. Uh, and it seems to me, though, that that the, the 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 danger of this weapon, far more than the infection itself, Dan, is the panic that ensues and the breakdown in 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 law and order and 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 the fear and so forth uh which would disrupt yeah. food supplies and all of these things i mean it doesn't require right. you know a number of clusters of outbreak it just requires panic that's what terrorists do they create fear they operate on fear uncertainty and panic and 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 that's why the likelihood of them coming together um I would like to add a third scenario to your two scenarios of how it could be spread. Yes. If, if 
you understand that I believe that there that there are ISIS terrorists already here in the United States, I, I believe, and um, I, I, I'm not trying to scare people. My job as an author is to think about what ifs, and when I've been asked to think about what ifs with the combination of ISIL and Ebola. Um, Everybody understands that the that the the way the disease is currently passed, assuming no mutations, is through bodily fluids. And so your two, first two scenarios create scenarios by which they can they can distribute bodily fluids on a limited scale basis. Okay. Right. Uh, but I've got another scenario, and that is that they infect people. They come into the into Canada or the United States, and they let them die, and they dump their bodies in the water reservoirs. Oh dear. Oh my. Didn't think about that one, huh? Uh, I didn't, and I'm not sure whether <laughs> I, I. It's a good thing that you did or didn't. I mean, do, do you worry that you're some? I mean. If you're thinking about these things, obviously others are. But do you do you ever wonder whether you should, I don't know, broadcast it? Think about giving these ideas out, putting these ideas out there. I would say to you that 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 was early on when my first book came out. People would say to me as I would travel around the country and do interviews on the radio like this with you. Well, are you are you giving the terrorist ideas? <clears throat> and I said, as it relates to book one. Um, I simply uh, selected things that seemed obvious to me of vulnerabilities. And uh, I, I built my scenarios around those four various uh, possibilities. There could have probably been eight or 20 or 50 possibilities. Uh, I believe that these are not <clears throat> dumb people. These are people who are thinking about all the possibilities. Um, and And... If you understand that, as you said just before the break, while we have a, <clears throat> a vaccine for smallpox, <clears throat> there is no vaccine for Ebola. It is basically isolation and letting uh, the controlled exposure um, feed upon itself to the point that there's nothing left uh, to spread it and keeping people isolated. And um, But <clears throat> it is a disease that is spread through bodily fluids, and and I, I, I looked at that and I say, what is not being talked about? See, you maybe don't have the problem that we have in the United States. Um, our media, most of the time, is not truthful, I believe, when it speaks to the, the majority of Americans. There are many, many examples of where they've, they have supported the president and misled people, um, they've doctored stories that their credibility, in my opinion, is is diminished dramatically, especially the, the major networks, because they've all been convicted of doctoring evidence and doctoring the truth to to a further an agenda. So <clears throat> uh, what they're not telling us is almost as important as this if not more important than what they're telling us. Absolutely. We'll, um, we'll pick up on that at point. This was a short segment. Sorry, Dan. We'll pick up on that point when we come back. I mean, there have been a number of celebrated cases where 
celebrated uh, reporters have come forward and, 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 and said as much, that they were being uh, censored and censured. Uh, we'll yeah. come back with Dan Perkins and discuss the twin threats of Ebola and terrorism. Oh, what a dark winter it could be. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Uh, next week on the program, rock and roll investigator R. Gary Patterson will be here as we uh, commemorate the 34th uh, anniversary of the uh, the death of former Beatle John Lennon. Dan Perkins stays with us as we discuss the twin threats of Ebola and uh, terrorism. Now, if you go to the uh, the website, richardserrett.com, and uh, this week on The Conspiracy Show, you'll see Dan's name right there at the top. Just click on Dan's name, and that'll take you to his website, which is danperkins at sanibel.com. That's S-A-N-I-B-E-L.com. Dan Perkins at sanibel.com. But just go to my website and click on his name, and we've linked up to his website. Uh, so, Dan, we were talking about the, the media uh, and how, uh, uh, in so many cases, they just seem to roll over and play dead when, the, you know, when, when issues that matter um, mm-hmm. you know, are, should be front and center. Now, right. what... what uh, what is going on in terms of the travel ban in the United States? I mean, it took till late October before in the United States they finally decided, okay, anyone from traveling from West Africa can only go through certain U.S. airports that have screening facilities in place. I mean, why not just right. an out-and-out ban? Why not just because an out-and-out was, travel ban? Because it was, because it was politically motivated. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to be critical here okay i just i just want to illustrate the point that you're talking about the president of the united states at the height of the wave of the ebola infection in the united states at least at this moment in time decided after a lot of conservative radio and television people suggested that we needed to have an ebola czar Do you remember that? Yes. Did you ever, ever see or hear of anything the Ebola czar did? Can't name anything off the top of my head, Dan. No, there's nothing. Did the American media, in, in the mainstream media, say anything about the fact that this person was... And they had a, was going to be the Ebola czar, was selected by the president, was introduced, and then disappeared. And nobody knows if he did anything. But the media didn't question that. So here we had a nation that, as you said earlier, was somewhat in panic. The president is pressured by the American public to do something. So then he has this, this five West Coast or East Coast cities. You got to fly into. You didn't ban all of the all traffic coming from west Western Africa. And I thought it was absolutely amazing to listen to people from the administration and and more specific, specifically the the gentleman who was in charge of the Center for Disease Control in Atlanta, saying that it would be economically devastating to those West African those five West African countries. If the United States put a travel ban for anybody coming from those countries, now I, you know, I listened to that, and my again, my author, inquisitive, 
nature went in and began to look at the gross domestic product of those five countries. The aggregate gross domestic product of the five countries with the Ebola virus were less than half of the gross domestic product, the gross, gross domestic product of the state of New Jersey. But the administration was saying this is this is what we should be doing. We should be protecting their economy. Um, there was a discuss of there was maybe as many as 150 people a day traveling from those West African countries in the United States. It would be devastating for their economies. And nobody in the press said, are you kidding me? Like they didn't do their homework. Nobody said anything about it. They just accepted it that that was what it's going to be. I, I, I need to ask you a question. I know we don't have a lot of time. I am absolutely fascinated with your, from what I could hear, I didn't see, but hear your response to my third scenario. It was, well, it you, was pretty grim, throwing a body into a water reservoir. I mean, that's just... More than one. Right. More than one. And, and, and more than one reservoir. What surprised you about that? I mean, you said it was grim, but was it so unrealistic as not being possible? I guess that's that. That's what shocked me is that it suddenly dawned on me. You know, it's it's like in in plain sight. I mean, why didn't I think of that? And have they thought of that? And it seems so obvious. If you want to infect, you know, <laughs> millions of people, that's what you would do. That's precisely what you would do. You would throw a body infected with the Ebola virus into a water reservoir, infect the public mm -hmm. drinking system. I mean, that's right. just a, a nightmare scenario. Right. And, and, and maybe maybe some of the chemicals that they use in the waters would, would treat the virus. I don't know. I'm not a scientist. All I'm saying is, again, if ISIL were to say that they were going to to dump bodies in in, in water supplies, again, panic is my water safe they, they don't even have to and, do it just i mean <laughs> threaten to do it or exactly exactly it's so, so but that's how terrorism works and so i think that we are we have underestimated these people from the very beginning uh they are the the, the level of terrorism in the world in many different places uh we, we not you not canada the united states are presently our president personally decided that Gaddafi needed to be taken out in Libya, and he needed, we needed a regime change there. Now the terrorists absolutely control the country. That country is under anarchy, under control of terrorists in, in, the, in, 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 in that part of the world. Nobody's talking about it. You know, Nobody's I know you're not a conspiracy theorist, Dan, but if, you know, <laughs> I'm sitting back listening to this and thinking and, and over the, you know, the, the throughout the Arabs, the, the so-called Arab Spring, thinking, my gosh, that's exactly what they wanted to happen. If they couldn't have planned for it any better, that, that uh, you know, you could say, oh, they were just being inept. I don't think so. I mean, time after time, this is what happens. Uh, you get rid of someone uh, who we perceive as sort of, you know, the boogeyman. Uh, who turns out to be really a bulwark against a lot of this? Uh, you know, Gaddafi right. was a, a thug, no question. Um, right. But wouldn't? But he gave up his nuclear weapons. Yes, 
Yes. I mean, wouldn't we all be better off if Gaddafi was still in Libya, including many Libyans, where they, where they had running water and free education and free housing and free dental? And... Right. Right. And, and so the, the point is that we have a regime in the Middle East. I, I, I said to people that I believe that the, that the swagger of ISIL was born the day the President of the United States drew the line in the sand in Syria and then did nothing. At that moment in time, he released the evil power of ISIL on the Middle East and potentially the entire world. And if you look at what he's trying to do, uh, I, I heard one of the news reports uh, where there were, uh, they were reporting, the Syrians are reporting that there were 50 killed. Fifty killed, and that was, and that is a pittance to the number of people that are fighting on on with ISIL in Syria. So it's you know it's again it's it's an issue of how 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 is it being reported? I I think because it, again I I I've been to your beautiful country a number of times, only as a tourist. Um. I have grave concerns that we have a, an attitude in the United States. If it's not in the headlines, it's forgotten. No question. And until no it comes, question. Now, until yeah. it comes back in the headlines, it's the reason why I believe that the president basically, um, his party lost the midterm elections because he did not have his eye on the ball as it relates to the two, two subjects that we're talking about, ISIL and Ebola. And the American people didn't feel safe and showed that in the polls, that the president was really trying to protect them, which is part of his responsibility in his oath of office of president. And that's when they couldn't trust the president and they couldn't trust anybody that de what the Democrats were saying. And that's why there was such a huge landslide victory, I believe, is that they're looking for somebody to trust. And if it's not in the news, then the Democrats and the leadership of the, of the American uh, Democratic Party is not in the news. Not a problem. Since you've been talking yeah. about these two threats coming together, terrorism and Ebola, uh, yeah. and some of these grim scenarios that, that, you're, that you're, you're painting here, have you been uh, contacted by any of the alphabet agencies saying, what, what do you hear, what do you know, Dan? Why are you linking these two? And, and uh, uh, I mean, have they shown any interest? Um, no, I, I, they haven't. In fact, let me tell you a, a quick story. I did an interview in Washington, D.C. Uh, about three months after the book one came out. And a, the reporter, he asked me the same question. He said, you know, I just thought about this. I remember a few years ago seeing a request for proposal, which I know means something different in Canada, but in the United States. They're looking for people to bid on a contract being let by the Defense Department. The specific contract that was being let was they wanted to hire fiction writers like myself to create scenarios for the Defense Department so that they could build strategies against it. And they, and they apparently said in their RFP, when people were responding to it, that we don't have the creative staff, the creative people that uh, that can help us create these 
scenarios, whether they're realistic or not, something that we can react to. So the answer to your question, from book one, with the four scenarios of where they would use nuclear weapons to attack the United States, to what's going on, no. None of the alphabet agencies have contacted me. So they've admitted, the Defense Department has admitted, the people that are charged with protecting the citizens of the United States, they don't have the wherewithal to figure out that terrorists could, for example, uh, infect themselves with Ebola, blow themselves up in a mall, or dump a body of someone who succumbed to Ebola into the water supply. They can't figure that out. That does not leave me, or I'm guessing anyone listening, with a great deal of confidence. Dan, I uh, really wow. appreciate your time tonight. Thank you for this. Thank uh, you, this is dire. This is dire. I hope we can talk again. Thank Dan. you for having me on. And your listeners can get my book uh, on the website, or they can get it from Amazon, and they can get an audio for book one, uh, paperback, hard copy, hard copy, and ebook. And uh, audio for book two will be out shortly, and book three will be published later this month, if not the first week of January. And thanks again for having me on your show. Dan Perkins, my pleasure. Thank you. Dan Perkins at Sanibel, S-A-N-I-B-E-L.com, or just go to richardserrett.com and click on Dan's name. We've linked up to his website. My website, again, richardserrett.com. Say hello on Twitter at Richard Serrett. And as always, follow the truth. Hey, thanks for inviting me into your home. As always, we're coming to you from our cozy little studio nestled in Toronto's Liberty Village neighborhood in our flagship station, Zoomer Radio, AM 740. But you may be listening online at zoomerradio.ca around the world or to the podcast, maybe on talkzone.com or to one of our growing list of affiliates in the U.S. like WRNIAM in Providence, Rhode Island, or KINX in Great Falls, Montana, or KBUF AM in Wichita. Uh, welcome to you all wherever you are. And just a reminder, we're doing another Hangout on Air. So if you want to watch the live stream, you just go to my Twitter feed, at Richard Serrett, and then you click on the, uh, the live stream link. It's uh, right there at the top of the Twitter uh, the Conspiracy Show on TV. I believe uh, we've wrapped up Season 3 on Vision TV. I believe the, uh, the entire run of 13 episodes has now aired across Canada on Vision. Uh, but the show is growing internationally. We're now in over 200 markets in the U.S. And the show was recently sold to Australia and Poland. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, at my Follow the Truth Summit in Oshawa, we flew Don Schmidt up uh, to speak about the Roswell UFO crash. Uh, well, they call it UFO, uh, but it was actually uh, two crafts, actually. And so Don Schmidt was there talking Roswell. And then we had Jim Penniston, one of the key witnesses to the Rendlesham Forest UFO incident, join us uh, via Skype. Uh, and then on that same stage, after, uh, after Don Schmidt and Jim Penniston, we had Simka... Uh, Jakubovich, who was uh, coming to us via Skype again, live from Israel to discuss archaeology in the Bible. So we covered a lot of territory uh, during the, uh, the conference. Uh, but for the next hour, we're going to sort of bring these two fascinating arenas together into one conversation. I'm talking about the Bible and aliens. What is the connection, for example, uh, between Mount Hermon, which is uh, located... Uh, between Syria and Lebanon, 
and the Roswell UFO crash in 1947. Who or what are archons? Why did Jesus say that in the end times it would be as it was in the times of Noah? Rob Skiba is an award-winning documentary filmmaker and the best-selling author of several books including Babylon Rising and The First Shall Be Last and Archon Invasion, The Rise, Fall, and Return of the Nephilim. As an ancient Nephilim theorist, Rob brings a unique and often unheard perspective to the UFO alien discussion. He's an internationally recognized public speaker, and he often appears on paranormal and prophecy talk shows and is a featured keynote speaker at conferences all around the world. As a graduate of the Hollywood Film Institute, his lifelong dream has been to produce powerful television and motion picture productions. He's currently working full-time on the development and production of Seed, the series. Rob Skiba, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I'm great, Richard. How are you? I'm very well and very excited to talk to you. As I mentioned, we had Don Schmidt, uh, one of the world's foremost Roswell UFO uh, investigators up uh, up here in these here parts back uh, earlier this month. And um, I, I'm very fascinated uh, by the, the connection, the possible connection between uh, the Roswell UFO incident and uh, Mount Hermon. Uh, in the Middle East, can we can we start with that discussion because this is this is very intriguing. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I have to give credit where credit is due. It was David Flynn, who was the researcher who really uh, I think put this whole subject on the map. Uh, he's where I got my information from. But he discovered that uh, if you if you you can even go on Google Earth and check this out for yourself, that uh, sort of the center of the mountain range of Mount Hermon is 33.33 degrees north by 33.33 degrees east from the Paris Prime Meridian, which many of your listeners may be aware was once known as the Devil's Line. Of course, Dan Brown and others write about that. Uh, If you go on Google Earth, it's going to give it to you from uh, Greenwich, so it's like 35.54 or something. But if you subtract the difference uh, between that and the Paris Prime Meridian, you end up with 33.33. Well... Most people who read the scriptures will understand that Lucifer, Satan, took one-third of the angels with him uh, when he rebelled. And so if you think about that, that's one-third of a hundred. It's about 33.33333333. There you go. Yes. You know, so it's just, it's kind of bizarre that I believe it's a platoon of about 200 watcher-class angels, according to the uh, Book of Enoch, landed on Mount Hermon in the days of Jared. And so it's sort of like they landed on the only geographical landmass location on the planet that sort of fits their number of their army, you know, uh, perfectly. Right. Can I, and, can I just stop you right there, Rob? Can you take us through that, yeah. that passage in, Jared? What does it say about these? Does it actually say 200? Yes, in the Book of Enoch. Oh, in the Book uh, of Enoch, I'm sorry. Me, I don't, I, 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 it's within the first six chapters, I believe, that it gives you that information. But, yeah, it talks about 200... Uh, watcher class angels, and we know reading in the Bible there are different classes of angels, archangels, seraphim, cherubim, you know, you know, different classes of angels like that. Well, watcher is another class of angels. It's actually mentioned in the canonized text of the book of Daniel. Um, now, you know, some people argue about whether the book of Enoch is really scripture. All I can say is it has been in and out of our Bible 
throughout the centuries. <laughs> um, the Ethiopians still have it in their Bible to this day, so I don't really get into any arguments of whether or not it should be or should not be considered Scripture. I just point out the fact that many have viewed it that way. Um, and it, it happens to give you a lot of really interesting information, especially the first two verses. You open the book up, and it basically tells you in the first two verses that this book is written for those who will be living in the day of tribulation. Uh, it is not for this generation, but for a remote one, which is to come. So right off the bat, first two verses of the first chapter, it's telling you that this book is not for the people who may have been contemporary when it was written, but for those who are going to be living in what we would call the tribulation period or the last days. So I find it rather interesting that a little boy throws a rock into a cave and hears a jar crack and boom, out pops the Dead Sea Scrolls, you know, in the 1946 time frame, right about the same time or within a year or so. Right, the Nag Hammadi, um, right. Yeah, of Roswell. Ah, right, and, 1947, there you go. Yeah, uh, and David Flynn found this really interesting. He took a team out there, I believe it was in 2005, and, of course, it didn't have the event, the alleged crash, did not happen in Roswell. It happened further to the, I guess, northwest, I believe, in Corona, of right. that town. Right. And uh, he went out there with some GPS devices and whatnot and some other uh, machinery and whatever and uh, found out that that's 33.33 degrees also. And when he multiplied his location by the universal constant of pi, it gave him his longitude of 104. So... He began to wonder, is, is this a possible fulfillment of a prophecy? Probably actually a number of prophecies, but one of them in particular is uh, Jesus said in Matthew twenty four thirty seven that the last days would be like the days of Noah. And so, well, that begs the question, what was going on in the days of Noah? Precisely, you know? precisely, yes. And, you know, many people think, you know, it's just about people bonking each other over the head with clubs and, you know, being bad or whatever, and yeah, sure, that may have been happening, but that's not the reason for the flood. The reason for the flood was because uh, Genesis 6.12 tells you that all flesh had become corrupted, and I believe it's talking about genetic corruption. Right. Uh, he wanted about, to clean the gene pool. He wanted to, cl uh, God, meaning God, wanted to clean the gene pool. Is that the idea? Exactly. That's what the flood was about. Yeah. Only one pure family, right? That was Noah and his family. Yes. And, and this is a, a, a bit controversial uh, in my circles. Uh, people who do the research on the Nephilim, um, they believe in what's referred to as multiple incursions, that angels continue to mate with women over and over and over again after the flood. My research has led me in a different direction uh, from that. Uh, Genesis 6, I believe it's 8 and 9, tells us that Noah was found uh, righteous and pure in his generations. Are perfect in his generations. The, the phrase perfect in his generations comes from a Hebrew word that means it's tamim, that means genetically pure. It's the same word that's used elsewhere for like getting the pure red heifer for sacrifice right. and whatnot, you know, right. uh, in temple service. So it, it tells you that Noah was pure, and then it tells you he had three sons. So I believe by implication, the three sons were also pure, which means his, Noah's wife was pure. And the book of Joshua, which is in what I call, it's one of three books that I refer to as the synchronized, biblically endorsed, extra-biblical texts. And 
the reason I refer to them that way is because they are synchronized. They tell the same story in the same chronological order, order of events, but they fill in different blanks. What Enoch doesn't cover, Joshua does. What Joshua doesn't cover, another book, Jubilees does. And when you kind of put them all together, it tells you a very detailed story about what was going on in those days. And I say they're biblically endorsed because the authors of Scripture referred to these books. They infer things that can only be found in these books. They quote from them. They mention them by name. So I figure, well, if it's good enough for them to do that, it's good enough for me. That it tells you that uh, Noah married, uh, I believe it's Enoch's daughter. And you know, we learn from the Scriptures that Enoch was so righteous that God took him home. He's, you know, <laughs> early. So I think it's a reasonable assumption that that immediate family is pure. However, uh, when you keep going past Genesis 6, 8, and 9, you find out that violence is increasing, and then all flesh becomes corrupted. And I come from a, a literal point of view. I look at it and I say, well, it's going to take it literally. That's what it says. All flesh. I mean, does all mean all or not? I guess it means all, uh, with the exception of the people they just mentioned that are tamim. Well, then you get down to verse 18, and... Of course, 18 follows 12. It tells the first mention of the three wives of Noah's three sons. Well, that led me down a very interesting path, specifically in the books of Joshua and Jubilees. And they, in my mind, from the research that I did, have to fall into the category of all flesh that had become corrupted. And one of the reasons I say that is because Moses writes in Genesis chapter 9, verses 18 and 19, that that Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Right. And then he gives like this little, almost like a parenthetical. He says, and Ham is the father of Canaan. And you're like, why did he say that? (laughs) Mm. I mean, why did he specifically mention that? Because the Canaanites are the giants that are all over the Old Testament, the ones that God is always telling the Israelites to utterly destroy, including men, women, and children. And Yeah, there's a lot of smiting. There was a lot of smiting going on. Uh, in, yeah. in the Old Testament, and I never, I could, I never could understand why would a, a loving God order the Israelites to go into village after village after village and smite every living thing uh, in that village. But then, Rob, it starts to make sense when we understand where you're headed, and let's take a time out. We'll come back and continue and discuss why, for example, just did Jesus say that in the end times... And some say the end times are upon us. Why did Jesus say in the end times? It would be as in the times of Noah. Is there a connection between the alien abduction phenomenon and what was going on in the times of Noah? We'll find out. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show and my conversation with award-winning documentary filmmaker, best-selling author Rob Skiba as we discuss aliens and the Bible. Welcome back. We are with Rob Skiba as we discuss aliens in the Bible. Now, uh, set something straight for me, Rob, because this is something that has perplexed me for a very long time. When we talk about uh, the fallen angels uh, co-mingling with the daughters of men and then creating this race of giants and the Nephilim and so forth, is it possible then, I mean, how do do angels uh, created by God co-mingle with humans. They are not human. I mean, how does that happen? Is it... I mean, they're spirit, are they not? When they're in heaven, certainly. But we see that they show up on Earth in a number of occasions uh, as fully human. Um, I mean, there are lots of locations 
in the Bible where you could point to that they're showing up as people. Uh, three of them showed up to Abraham before the destruction of uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, we see Paul later in the New Testament telling us that, you know, we could be entertaining angels unaware. You know, and, and you've seen shows like Touched by an Angel and whatnot where they're, they tell these nice little stories where they encounter people that, quote-unquote, people that help them, but we see in the show that they're angels. And, you know, I, I can say that there have been a number of times in my life where I've had people inter- that I've interacted with that I believe are angels. At one time in particular, after this person helped me through a really difficult situation, um, he said, all right, you know, and he, we shook hands, and I literally bent down to pick something up and looked back up, and the dude was gone. <laughs> you know, So I'm going, okay. Did I just have one of those encounters? I don't know. Right. I don't know if I did or if I didn't. So you're saying um, it's possible then for fallen angels to have sexual relations with humans? Well, apparently the ancient record was unanimous in their agreement on that up until about 200 A.D. Mm-hmm. 200 A.D. is when an individual named Julius Africanus showed up, and, and he said, you know what, I don't believe that's possible, so he just wrote the whole thing off came up with another theory that where Genesis says the sons of God came into the daughters of men, that what it really meant was the sons of God are the good sons of, of Adam and Eve's son, Seth. Right. And the daughters of men are the bad daughters of Cain. And I'm like, well, I got a number of problems with that idea. First of all, it doesn't say that. Uh, second of all, later in, like in the book of Job, you see that the, the phrase sons of God, but not Elohim, uh, is a reference to angels. Um, and third, how do kissing cousins produce characters like Og of Bashan, who is 15 to 18 feet tall, according to the text, mm. or Goliath, you know, the famous David and Goliath, and he's 9 to 12 feet tall. So, right, entire, you know, entire villages, entire settlements of giants, like Hebron. Sorry? Uh, entire settlements and villages of giants, like Hebron at one time. Oh, Hebron was like uh, giant central. Mm-hmm. Um, Hebron was originally known as Kiriath Arba, the city of Arba, Arba was the father of Anak, who was the father of the Anakim, mm-hmm. who the Israelites encountered when they came out of the Exodus, and they sent the Hebrew spies into the land. And their words in Numbers chapter 13 was, uh, we feel like grasshoppers by comparison to these guys. And they repeatedly state that they were men of great stature. And among the Canaanites uh, are a group called the Amorites. Uh, Agabashan and Sihon were two famous Amorite kings that the Israelites took out. Well, the Amorites, according to Amos chapter 2, uh, they were the size of cedar trees. Well, a cedar tree, a modest cedar tree, gets to 30, 35 feet tall. The cedars of Lebanon got to 150 feet tall. So just taking the low side of that, you're still going to feel like a grasshopper next to a 36-footer. You know? Sure, sure. Well, so... Um, so the question is, uh, you know, uh, that we've long asked is, okay, so, you know, after the flood, why why were there giants again? And why, you know, how is that possible? And you, you've basically ascertained that the, the wives of the sons of Noah were not genetically pure. Correct. And, and again, I'll point to Genesis 9, 18 and 19, where it says that Shem, Ham, and Japheth are the three sons of Noah, and Ham is the father of Canaan. Now, that's really important. But the next verse says, and through them was the whole world populated. Now, this is written about 850 years after the flood, and Moses is clearly stating that the entire planet was populated from these three people, and oh, by the way, Ham's the father of Canaan. Well, when you turn the page to chapter 10, 
and specifically verses 6 through 20, it gives you all the ites that we mentioned before the break, that the Israelites were told to utterly destroy all over and over and over again. And this is what blew my mind. Um, Chuck Missler had done something that, uh, in a presentation I saw. He had taken the, the meaning of the names of the first ten patriarchs from Adam to Noah. And yes, I've seen that. It's, it's spectacular. The, have yeah. you seen that? Yes, I have. Explain it, though, for our listeners. Yeah. yeah. Sure. Uh, we, you know, because their names mean things. Uh, you know, uh, so when you take the meaning of their names in, in the order that they're given, from Adam to Noah, it basically spells out a paragraph that says, "Man is appointed mortal sorrow. The blessed God shall come down teaching that with his death the despairing shall find rest." Well, I mean, that's like the whole plan of the Bible. <laughs> sure. In the meaning of the names of these ten guys. Yeah, the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. I guess that's that's right. Yeah. And when I thought about that, I got a little book, and I highly recommend your listeners, and you might want to check this out yourself, get this book. It's the best $5 I ever spent. It's called The Dictionary of Scripture Proper Names by J.B. Jackson. And all it is is all the names in the Bible and what their names mean. Well, because we come to those passages where it says so and so begets so and so begets so and so, and there's yeah. Only why do they stick that in there? That's out. yeah. Why would they stick that in there? But if you understand the code, it's yes. it's speaking to you. It tells you stuff. Like you know, before I knew this, I used to skip past that stuff because I couldn't pronounce the names anyway. You know. Um, but then when I got this book, I said, you know, this, I wonder if there's any other patterns like what Chuck Missler found, and I did. I found a really interesting one in Genesis ten six through twenty. And just taking the names that are given there, these are the Canaanites, and the meaning of their names and putting them in the same order that they're listed, this is the paragraph that you end up with. He raged, a black terror, double straight afflicted trafficker. Black terror, drink thou anguish, compass the chamber, thunder compasses the smiting. He who is coming, their love, we shall rebel. And that's Nimrod right there. A double straight firebrand, travailing, affliction of water, blades opening the moistened morsel, Forgiven ones bowing to spy, a trafficker hunting terrors, trodden downstairs, the strangers draw near. Showers of life, gnawing like thorns, they shall break loose, double woolen enclosures of wrath. And I'm like, okay. Uh, what you look does at the that sons mean? <laughs> of Shem and Japheth? Yes. They got pretty normal names. But why does a new, you know, why does a proud parent look down at their newborn kid and name it Enclosure of Wrath? What do you think, honey? There you go. Exactly. Exactly. Um, Unless there's something clearly wrong with these kids, you know. Well, clearly there was, because those are the ones that we see over and over and over again. And it's weird. Uh, Richard, i got to tell you, back in the the day when I was really starting to dive into the Bible, the Old Testament freaked me out, man, because... There's this God, like, killing everybody, right. and then you get to, like, the New Testament, and, and Jesus says in John ten thirty, I and my Father are one. Or he tells Philip, the disciple, if you see me, you've seen my Father. And all these times he's saying, me and Dad are the same. And I'm going, I don't get it. Yeah, I've, I've like always been conflicted. Guy. Yeah, it's conflicted. I've always been conflicted. Uh, this re- vengeful, wrathful God ordering the Israelites to smite everything in sight in the Old Testament, and then all of a sudden, as you say, you know, uh, this loving God. Yeah. Well, I, I can never reconcile that until I realized, because he would tell them, you know, they're in a military campaign, men kill men. Men, that's what happens, you know. And, and there are some campaigns where that's what happened. They would kill the men, you know, in the battle, but they could take the women and children and animals as spoils of war. 
But yet when you go over here, you got to kill the women, kill the animals, kill the children, kill everybody. And I'm going, okay, what's, either God is prejudiced and schizophrenic and into random acts of genocide, or there's a legitimate reason why he would allocate certain cities for utter destruction and not do the same with other ones. Right. And when you go through it, you'll see in every single case that he's doing the utterly destroyed thing, it traces back to the people with the names I just mentioned in Genesis 10, 6 through 20, who all came from Ham's son Canaan, or Mitzram, uh, with no mention of angels popping in the scene anywhere in the picture. So uh, I'm going, well, that's what it says. So, And then later, you see characters like Akhenaten and Nefertiti showing up about 1300 B.C., with cone heads. And like, what is the deal with these guys? Well, then you go to Peru, and about 1000 AD, a whole bunch of conehead people start showing up in Peru. Right, you know? right. And there, there, uh, yeah, there were cases uh, where people were, were, you know, binding the child's head so that it could resemble, I suppose, maybe they were paying homage to their overlords. Uh, but in yeah. some cases, the... Uh, the, uh, the the signs that that you know that the skull was formed in that way aren't there. There's like a, almost like a stitching that you would see in yeah. a human skull that's been bound in order to 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 duplicate that that cone, conical shape. But in some cases, that stitching isn't there on the on the cranium, and so one has to wonder: Are those alien or fallen angel skulls? Yeah, well, I've got a replica of a pretty famous one of those skulls. A friend of mine uh, knew a woman who had access to the actual skull and uh, cast it to the mold and, you know, made a replica. And he gave it to me a couple years ago. And it, it's a female skull. The, the person was probably just uh, under five feet tall, but she had over 20% larger cranial capacity, of a 25, 20 to 25% larger brain, mm. and totally different suture patterns. You know, you're right. There were uh, There are people that do the head-binding thing with babies, but you got to ask a question, why did they decide, you know, hey, let's drop a board to the baby's head today, you know? Uh, they were emulating right. something that was real, you know? Because uh, you do find the ones with the stretched head like that, but do have a normal suture pattern just like yours right. and mine. Right. So then you find others that don't have the normal suture pattern, and, and changing the shape is not going to enlarge the inside of the brain, uh, you know, case, such that you could have 25, in some cases, as high as 40% more brain capacity. You know, head binding is not going to do that. So, uh, and when you look at the Egyptians, they come from Ham's son Mitzrayim, with no mention of angels anywhere. And Kaptor, this is what really got me interested in the whole subject, was Kaptor is one of the sons of Mitzrayim. He settled the island of Crete. And, well, Crete is where all of Greek mythology originates. So you want to know where Zeus and all those guys come from? Well, there's a pretty good indication right there. And the Philistines come from Kaftor also. So, you know, we know at least four or five giants, uh, Goliath and his brothers, you know, born to the giant in Gath. Um, You know, so we know that there were six fingers, six toes, probably double rows of teeth, uh, giants from the Philistines. And the Philistines came from Kaftor, who settled the island of Crete being the son of Mitzrayim. So, uh, and then, of course, you got Joshua and his boys. That when After the exodus, they're told to wipe the, you know, these guys out. But they, did, they failed to get all of them. Uh, they missed the ones, and interestingly enough, the Gaza Strip, the Golan Heights, and the West Bank. <laughs> uh, kind of bizarre that we're sure. still having issues in those areas today. Well, and then there are also, of course, uh, you know, the, these um, burial mounds all over the United States, 
uh, containing these, you know, large skeletal remains. Abraham Lincoln, before he became yeah. president, touring Niagara Falls and, and talked about the spect- you know, how, how visually spectacular the falls were and, and how they've remained unchanged since, you know, they were looked upon by well, he was referring to the giants and those the giant bones inside those those burial mounds. He was talking about giants in the United States. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and now they got the new History Channel out. Uh, those guys out looking for this stuff. But uh, I live in, in North Dallas, and about 45 minutes to the east of where I live is a place uh, called Rockwall, Texas. Yes. And that's a really cool story. I mean, it's called Rock Wall because I think it was back in the 1800s. A dude's digging a foundation or something. He hits a rock, digs a little deeper, realizes it's the rock wall. Keeps digging, finds out it's a really big rock wall. Then they end up finding an opening in the rock wall. Go inside, they find a room that had a cauldron, as the story goes, uh, with human remains in it. So apparently, what was there, whoever was living there was eating people. And then they found a skull uh, about three times larger than yours and mine. So, you know, that place is about 18 feet tall, right here in Rockwall, Texas. What they do, they put a reservoir over it. You can't, you can't go there now. There's the, the Lake Ray Hubbard is covering up all that. Hmm. And uh, you, you, I went out there with L.A. Marzulli, uh, who was doing uh, Watchers 4, right. one of his DVD series on this. And, uh, and, and people either aren't talking or they don't have a clue today about what's going on. Well, let's we'll be coming up on a break in a few minutes, but let's begin this discussion, and then we can continue it afterwards. And that that leads, you know takes us back to to Jesus talking about in the end times it would be as it was in the times of Noah. And I'm, so I, the, let me just cut right to the quick. What is the connection then between the alien abduction phenomenon and uh, let's go back to the Book of Enoch, where the 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 uh, you know the fallen angels were commingling with the daughters of men. Yeah. Uh, well, I want to differentiate between the days of Noah and the days of Jared. The days of Jared uh, are the days when the 200 watchers came down and made it with women. Right. And Enoch tells you that the first generation Nephilim only lived for 500 years, and they were to kill each other off in a massive civil war that the Greeks later stylized into what became known as the Clash of the Titans. Right. But this, the, the days of Jared are 1,200 years before the flood. So go forward 500 years, you still got 700 years more to go. And the first generation uh, Nephilim kill each other off, the Titans. Then the Watchers, their parents, are judged, bound, and buried for 70 generations. And this is something we definitely want to come back to uh, after the break. They're bound for 70 generations. And if my calculations are correct, I put together a timeline on this, that's roughly 3000 B.C. when that took place when the Watchers were judged for 70 generations. And then about 68, 70 years later, Noah's born, and there's still, from the date Moses, excuse me, Noah is born, there's 600 years left to go before the flood. So that begs the question, okay, if the angels made women, created these Titan Nephilim, there's a big clash of Titans, but they're all dead, and the Watchers are judged bound and buried, what in the world got God so mad that he had to wipe out the whole world 600 years to 700 years later, with the flood. Exactly. Well, what contaminated the gene pool? Sorry? I say, what? yes, indeed, what contaminated the gene pool if, uh, you know, the the, uh, the watchers are locked up and, uh, as you say, their, uh, their progeny are, you know, destroyed themselves in this clash of uh, the titans. Listen, we'll pick up on that when we come back. On the other side, Rob Skiba continues as we discuss aliens in the Bible right here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Don't you go away. 
Welcome back. Rob Skiba stays with us, the award-winning documentary filmmaker and best-selling author of several books, including Babylon Rising and The First Shall Be Last and Archon Invasion, The Rise, Fall, and Return of the Nephilim. Uh, and Rob's website, uh, well, a, a number of them, but if you just go to uh, richardserrett.com and click on Rob's name, we've linked up to, to um, babylonrisingbooks.com. Uh, so back to... Uh, the uh, the uh, the watchers, the fallen angels, being banished to um, is it Tartarus, uh, where yes. they're chained up to yes. in, in Tartarus, and uh, but also under the sands of the earth. So there, which I believe Tartarus is under the earth as well. Um, but but we know that there are some that are buried just sort of underground, like Azazel or Azazel, uh, depending on how you pronounce it. Um, he was determined to be the worst of the 200, and he was buried in a place called Dudiel, which nobody really knows where it is. I speculate that it's in Iraq, um, but regardless, it's somewhere out in the desert, uh, a place called Dudiel. And we have four other angels that are buried under the river Euphrates that are mentioned in Revelation, I believe, chapter 9, if I remember right, um, that are released in the end times. So, um, you know, they're judged on and buried about 700 years before the flood, but then Genesis 6-3 is very telling. Genesis 6-3, God says that man's days shall be limited to 120 years, and a lot of people think that that's putting a, a cap on human longevity, uh, based on the fact that Moses lived 120 and pretty much nobody after him did, um, in biblical times anyway. Right. But there have been people today who have lived quite a bit beyond 120. I don't believe that that's talking about a cap on human longevity. I believe that it's telling us that in the last 120 years leading up to the flood, there, God was giving a warning, saying, you guys better stop what you're doing, otherwise my spirit will no longer dwell with you. Uh, those who come from a biblical worldview believe that when you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, he comes and lives in you, that our body becomes, a, in effect, the temple of the Holy Spirit. Right. Well, if you corrupt his house through genetic tampering, God's saying, look, don't mess with that which I created to be in my image and my likeness. If you do, I'm not going to be able to hang out with you anymore. My spirit will no longer dwell with you. And this is where Joshua and Jubilees come in really handy and and giving us, as Paul Harvey would say, the rest of the story (laughs) of Genesis 6.12. Genesis 6.12 just tells us all flesh became corrupted. Well, you're like, well, how'd that happen? Exactly. They're all locked up in Tartarus. Yeah, the angels are locked up, and the first-generation Nephilim are dead, although I do believe the first-generation Nephilim themselves were able to procreate, especially if you look at multiple cultures and their mythologies. You have, like, the Anunnaki and the Akiki. You have, in the Greeks, you have the Titans and the Olympians and the demigods. You know, multiple cultures um, have this idea of multiple generation of gods. So I do believe that the first-generation Nephilim did procreate uh, and, and I believe that their growth rate is the same as ours. They just keep going. You know, like, I stopped growing at age 16 or so, you know, 5 foot 11. But if you turn off the growth inhibitor gene that tells us when to stop, well, they're just going to keep on going. Right. So I think that they are, at, at least for a period of time, they are able to still mate with normal women uh, until they obviously get so large that that becomes prohibitive, uh, you know, for obvious reasons. But then I believe that it could mate within them their own class as well. So I believe that there were successive generations that came out of that first generation. 
they were probably still around in the days of Noah. But Joshua 4.18 and Jubilee 7.24 tell us that one of the things that started to take place in the last 120 years leading up to the flood was what we now call transhumanism, the idea of blending species, and specifically blending species with the human race. So now you got centaurs and minotaurs and satyrs and all the interesting animal-human hybrids of multiple cultures. You got the right. Sumerians depicting them, the Hittites depicting them, the Egyptians, the Greeks, everybody sure. Sure. in the ancient world were depicting these animal-human hybrids. And sooner or later, you gotta realize, you know what? With all these people depicting these things and going through a lot of effort and carving them into stone, they probably existed. And that's where my argument really centers around that issue right there, is because when I look at Jesus' prophecy in Matthew 24, 37, I don't see angels mating with women. I see transhumanism taking place in the last 120 years of Noah's life, or leading, uh, last 120 years, I should say, right. leading up to the flood. And I can turn on the evening news and see that happening. I don't see angels mating with women. But I do see lots of reports. A couple of years ago, the uh, U.K. announced 140 animal-human chimeras created in the laboratory. And I'm going, well, if that's what they're telling us, what are they not telling us? <laughs> you know? Exactly. Uh, that's happening. Uh, and, and it's not going to be good. In fact, people could go to 2045.com, 2045.com. These are some of the most brilliant minds in the world that have come together to form the 2045 Strategic Social Initiative. Yes. And it's all about achieving immortality. Yes. Their stated objective yes. is to achieve immortality by the year 2045, I would say parenthetically without God. Um, and the way they're planning on doing it, uh, Nick Bostrom and others are out there like, we got to blend ourselves with animals and, you know, uh, and machines. Right, you right. Know, Merge with the board. Yes. Merge with the board. I've, I've had a member of 2045 on the show talking about, about just that very, that very thing. Um, yeah. Do you, but but let, let me ask you about the the alien abduction phenomenon again. How does that yeah. how does that sort of connect with with this whole narrative of of fallen angels and and uh, some sort of hybrid uh, program? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that. Um, when people look at, at, at just on the surface of what I'm saying, and, and if they don't give me a, a chance to really explain it, they kind of start freaking out. They're like, well, if your theory is true, that means all of us have Nephilim DNA in us. And I'm going, well, there may be some truth to that, actually, if you think about it. Um, it look at what the Nazis were doing. you gotta, you got to wonder why were the Nazis specifically, actually, they were targeting uh, people with Rh-negative blood, they believe that the uh, Rh negative blood was proof that their ET origin of the, for their Nordic gods, you know, uh, came from the Aldebaran system. They were obsessed with finding blonde hair, blue eyes, and, and and getting them to mate and create the Ubermensch, the Superman, right? Right. Why? Why were they doing that? Well, those are recessive genes. First of all, blonde hair, blue eye, red hair, which incidentally is my ancestry. I'm, I'm part Scottish, so. Um, people wig out when I talk about the Canaanites and Ham because they they have this false understanding that Ham is the father of all black people, which is not really true. Cush um, maybe, but not Ham. Um, okay, listen, I've got a break and, coming in here. Let, Rob, uh, pardon the interruption. We'll uh, we'll continue this conversation. This was a short segment. Uh, back on the other side with okay. Rob Skiba, aliens and the Bible, right here on the Conspiracy Show. 
All right, Rob Skiba, let's get back to the uh, the connection between the alien abduction phenomenon uh, and uh, well, the, the the biblical narrative and and uh, the Nephilim and the Watchers and the fallen angels. What's what's the connection? Yeah. Um, oh, before the break, we're talking about the Nazis and the Rh negative factor. Um, and in my research, uh, the Rh negative deal is is really fascinating. We don't have time in the next 15 minutes or so to go over it, but uh, one of the things that I found was that there's a really high percentage of people who claim to have alien abduction experiences that are Rh negative. And uh, there are other researchers out there, uh, David Icke and whatnot, they talk about bloodlines. And when I was looking into this bloodline thing, and it's not just him, incidentally, I've been focusing on the Canaanites uh, mostly, but uh, Japheth also has giants in his line. Japheth had uh, Gog and Magog. In fact, I stood on the Great Wall of China in 2006 and came to understand that the Great Wall of China was originally known as the ramparts of Gog and Magog. And if you just do a Google, Gog and Magog plus giant, you'll find that all throughout history, Gog and Magog were understood to have been a class of, or a uh, tribe of giants. So there were giants in Japheth, too, uh, which would make a little bit more sense when you're talking about the Nordics and the blonde hair, blue eyes, and the red hair. And most giants that are found that have any soft tissue still remaining, uh, you find reports of the red hair. Uh, the Hopi Indians talk about it, uh, the, the conehead skulls in Peru, red hair. Um, so, you know, people who think that this is me trashing the descendants of Ham, I'm like, well, really, I'm trashing my own ancestry because I come from the, the pale skin, red hair, blue eye, Scottish background, you know. Um, but I don't believe angels are able to mate with women anymore, and I think I, um, Enoch chapter 68 absolutely refutes that idea. And when you look at Daniel 2.43, you got an interesting scripture, a prophetic scripture, that says, Where you saw the iron mixed with miry clay, yes. they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men. So now you got two things. you got the seed of men, and, and who is this they that are going to mingle themselves with the seed of men? But they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. And I believe that cleave thing is a marriage term. Uh, you know, a woman, a man and a woman come together, and they right. cleave one to another, and they become one flesh. Well, that happens through sexual intercourse. Right. Well, it's why why can't seed. angels? Why can't angels? Do you uh, believe why can angels no longer uh, have relations with with humans? Well, let me clarify that. I believe that they that they are physically, possibly physically able to do so, but only after they modify food. Um, in the Book of Enoch, it says that they had to. They met. Start, they started messing around with food first, genetically modifying the food before the women could conceive. And the Book of Jubilees seems to indicate that there was some sort of genetic change that took place that made conception even harder uh, afterwards. But I, we don't have time to get into that. But right. I, I do believe that there is going to be a second incursion of sexual interaction. The Book of Isaiah, chapter 14, tells us that Lucifer is cast down from heaven. And, and I think it's verse 21 or somewhere thereabouts, it talks about uh, his offspring are going to be destroyed. But that hasn't happened yet. And that's the reason in the book of Revelation, the devil is locked up and bound in chains for a thousand years before he's cast into the lake of fire. And I always wondered, what's the, why, why is the devil get locked up in chains for a thousand years, then he's let out, and then he's thrown in the lake of fire? I didn't understand that until I realized that that is the prescribed judgment for angels that mate with women. You, an angel mates with women... You get bound to change to go to Tartarus, and, and it is a terrifying judgment. 
Michael, the mighty archangel himself, no one's mightier other than the God, the Godhead itself, no one's mightier than Michael. He looked at the judgment of the watchers and he said, man, I am gripped with terror at what I'm seeing, and he prophesied it's not going to happen again. But in Daniel 2.43, you've got this mingling of seed, but not through cleaving. So I believe that that's what's talk, what we're looking at with alien abductions, because most of the alien abduction cases you read about or you hear about is people, uh, it's very scientific. It's laboratory experiments. It's seed being extracted. It's eggs being extracted. It's, it's implantation of embryos and extraction of fetuses. You know, it's all very scientific. And you're like, well, I mean, if all they had to do is grab a woman and go have sex, you know, why all the, the fuss, you right, know? Right, um, the, and I believe that there's that there are hindrances, and I believe part of the reason why we're having genetically modified food today is because the watchers, in my opinion, have been and are being released, because it says 70 generations, and Psalm 90, verse 10, defines a generation as 70 years, 80th by strength. If we go with the low number, 70 times 70 is 4,900 years. 4,900 years from 3,000 B.C. is the beginning of the 20th century. And I say, well... How else are we to explain the massive increase in science and technology and transportation and knowledge? And, you know, we went from a flat line for 5,000 years, horse and buggy and beast of burden, to planes, trains, automobiles, supposedly putting right. a man on the moon and right. sending right. probes out to the farthest region. How did that happen in 50 years? Vacuum tubes to you transistors know? overnight, seemingly. Yeah. And then you got the Nazis and uh, Werner von Braun and others saying, yeah, you know, we had help. <laughs> Well, you know, who helped them? And, and was this massive blood sacrifice that we call the Holocaust and World War II something that opened up portals that started releasing these guys? You know, I don't know. All I can do is speculate, but the numbers work out such that we are at the end of the 70-generation prophecy of the Book of Enoch, chapter uh, 15, if I remember right. Uh, it's, either chapter, it's chapter 10, I believe. So let's talk about let it. me yeah. get back to Roswell here for a second, as time is ticking here. But, but uh, so is, was Roswell, okay, in 1947, was that then the, the second wave of these watchers coming? And because we're told that there were, you know, you know maybe five, six alien bodies recovered, but that's hardly a wave. Correct. Yeah, well, first of all, I don't believe that the greys are fallen angels. Uh, I believe the greys are demons, and I differentiate between fallen angel and demon. Mm -hmm. uh, some people think they're one and the same. I disagree. Enoch chapter 15 tells you point blank that demons are the disembodied spirits of formerly living Nephilim, angel-human hybrids. So, you know, you create a titan, an angel-human hybrid, and you kill it. Well, its evil spirit goes out and becomes a wandering spirit or a demon. And angels get around just fine. They have bodies of their own. But demons, on the other hand, are always looking for a body to get into. So I believe, L.A. Marzulli and others believe this as well, that uh, the greys are probably just biosuits, that they are genetically engineered biological suits that enable a demon to have a tangible body. Interesting. And, you know, you always hear reports that they smell terrible, uh, that they're frail, they're weak, you know, uh, apparently they deteriorate quickly. Um, and it may explain why we have cattle mutilations and, you know, and human mutilations as well, where you have certain biological material uh, being extracted. So I think that those are the alien greys, so-called alien. I don't believe they're from Octaurus or Ryan the Pleiades or anywhere else. I think that they're demons. 
um, and interestingly enough, I did a UFO conference up in uh, New Jersey with a lot of the ancient aliens crowd was there. And we had some really interesting discussions. Of course, they believe in aliens from outer space. I believe it's right. interdimensional. But our conversations were, were very exciting, very interesting. And we're coming to a lot of the same conclusions, though we're using different terminology. Well, that's interesting so because I was going to ask you whether that message goes over well with – because you know that there is a certain portion of the uh, UFO ET uh, community, for lack of a better term. Uh, that that looks at E.T. as, you know, the, the knights in shining armor that are coming to Earth to save us from ourselves, that they're with promises of free energy and cures for cancer and so forth. So how does that message go over with that crowd, your message? Yeah, well, all you have to ask them is, what are they trading in exchange for that? <laughs> and, and you usually come to the conclusion that the trade-off for all this great technology and stuff is human women. Well, why do they need them, you know? Um, and if you go back to 1918, and uh, Aleister Crowley with his Emelantra working, and he opened up a portal, and apparently this character comes through that he calls Lamb. Yes. And he draws a picture of this dude in 1918, and Lamb looks remarkably similar to the greys of pop culture today. Isn't that interesting? But then you got his uh, sort of his disciples there, uh, L. Ron Hubbard and uh, Parsons, uh, out there doing the um, the Babylon working. And a year later, you got Roswell, you know. So I believe that, you know, and that took place in, in 1946, the uh, the Babylon working that uh, Jack Parsons and L. Ron Hubbard did in March 1946 in a location that later became known as Area 51. So uh-huh. they're trying to pick up where Crowley left off, and apparently Crowley was good at opening and closing portals. But as the story goes, in my research, these guys apparently... We're good at opening them, but not so good at closing them. And, you know, coincidentally, a year later, we have Roswell. You know, and then the modern UFO, you know, just takes off. The, all the modern UFO stories, really, in, especially in the 50s, we've got UFOs all over the place. Sure, sure. And then abductions and stuff like that. So, you know, I, I mean, at this point, we're all speculating, and no, nobody's ever sat down with one of these and had a conversation and said, okay, this is the deal. <laughs> but... Uh, I believe that from a biblical worldview, what we're seeing is the release of the watchers. We're seeing an increase of demonic activity, and we're going to see an increase in transhumanism, which will create what I call modern Nephilim all over again, the corruption of all flesh. And Jesus actually said, except those days be shortened, no flesh would be saved. Hmm. And and I believe that he said that because for the same reason his father said in Genesis six three, if you guys don't stop doing this, my spirit will no longer dwell with you. Why aren't there giants and, today, Rob? Why aren't there giants roaming well, around today? Uh, there would be those who would argue that there are giants today. There were uh, supposedly reports. Uh, you know, Steve Quayle and others have reported on this of giants supposedly found and captured by our own troops in Afghanistan. Um, the Solomon Islands. If you Google giant plus Solomon Island, you'll find a whole bunch of stories where people say, yep, they're still out there. <laughs> um, Sasquatch, uh, Bigfoot, Abominable Snowman. These are cone-headed giants, you know, that are still walking around. So, yeah, I, I believe that there are a fair amount of them that are still out there, but as recent as, oh gosh, the well, you talked about Abraham Lincoln, and he was quoting something, and he was making reference to giants, of course, right in his day, in the 1800s, but if you go to um, look at the works of Lewis and Clark, Meriwether Lewis 
it is believed that he may have been assassinated because of what he found. Uh, giants. And they report, the, the, the Spanish uh, conquistadors and stuff were reporting giants down in the Gulf of Mexico and Louisiana and all through that area. You know, so in not too distant history of the Americas alone, we have giant stories of giants. And the Hopi Indians talk about chasing giants in the caves and, you know, uh, setting fire so they can't get out and, you know, smothering them, basically. So, you know, I believe that there have been mass exterminations because the giants are known for eating people <laughs> and causing a lot of problems. So you know, from the Israelites in the days of Joshua to David and his mighty men to the Hopi Indians and others, it would be to our advantage to wipe them out because they're very problematic to have around. So, you know, I think they've been hunted to extermination in a lot of places, but in some places, apparently, they're still out there, uh, like Solomon Islands and Afghanistan. Rob, fascinating. I hope you'll join me again because we've only scratched the surface and uh, much more to discuss. Uh, thank you for your time. How can people get a hold of uh, Babylon Rising series? Yeah, uh, my primary website is Babylon Rising Books. Dot com. From there, you can get to my blog, BabylonRisingBlog.com. The TV series I'm developing that will talk about all this stuff in a science fiction format is SeedTheSeries.com. A pleasure, Rob. Thank you again. Thank you so much. Enjoyed it. Rob Skiba. Uh, my thanks to Tim Spreen for production and uh, Albert Vinzel, my story producer. Uh, back next week, our Gary Patterson as we talk about uh, John Lennon. Uh, and much more. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light, what I say in a whisper. Proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.